so glad you came back. Welcome to another episode of Dr. Me First. It's me, your colleague in medicine and coach in life, Dr. Freaking Aaron Wiseman. And yet again, I get to meet one of my online idols. I'm talking with Dr. Hala Sabri today. She is an amazing physician. You're going to hear me girl fan all sorts in the interview. And I just have to tell you, it's a really good one. Listen all the way through. All right, let's get into the interview. Welcome to the podcast. I already told her I'm girl fanning a little bit because this woman (laughs) does not know how important she was to me seven years ago. But welcome to Dr. Me First, Dr. Hala Sabri. It's so great to have you. Oh my gosh, it's so nice to be here. What a nice intro. Definitely, like I am a fangirl of like every single woman physician out there, you included. Because honestly, if it wasn't for people like you, I would not be where I am today at all. And I, and I don't say that as a cheesy cliche kind of statement, but literally like I almost quit everything I was doing and it was a community of women with you included in that, that kind of pushed me to, or actually not really pushed me, but more supported me to step into my greatness. And so I just want to thank you for the role that you've had in my evolution. So thank you. Well, I appreciate that. Hashtag DO women unite. I mean, that was one of the things when I joined PMG, that's Physician Moms Group for anybody who doesn't know the acronym. Get your ass in there if you're not there yet. But way back in the day when it first started, I think I jumped in when there was only like Mm 10,000 members, like when it was still like, it wasn't small, small, but it wasn't big, big. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Before it exploded. And so good. It was when you were still, I think, like managing oh. yourself and <laughs> we could all see the like title. Oh my God. Yeah. I managed it myself for probably the first three. Well, no, I shouldn't say three years, probably the first year. And then I recruited Dina Safe, who's also a badass uh, twin mama physician mom. She's emergency medicine. And then Semya Muhammad, who's a badass like mama four rheumatologist. And then it was the three of us really for the next two or three years. And then we actually recruited. And now we have a team of about 25 of us that moderate. And we have some other team members behind the scenes uh, that help with the website and the blog and our marketing director. And we have a whole research team. Oh my gosh. And also conference team. Yeah, I think that's it. But well, I guess it started somewhere, right? So it just started with me. And then, you know, I started learning how to scale and grow. And that was something that they never taught me in medical school at all. So I had to kind of learn it. And I, and I actually went to business school. A lot of people assume because I have my MBA. So I went, I went to medical school, but I did my dual degree and I, I compare it to kind of being an emergency medicine physician. Like we're really good at what we do. We're really good at resuscitating patients. We're really good at recognizing emergencies and basically preparing them for the next step, which is everybody else listening. That's not emergency medicine. It's like handing them off to you. So I think it's just more of us recognizing, you know, kind of what the emergency, what the need is and what the resources are, what we can fill and then recruiting resources and getting the whole team together. I feel like that's what my MBA did. My MBA just allowed me to recognize what I needed and know what I don't know, which is the, probably the, the most valuable piece of information you can, you can have, or, you know, skill set that you can have is knowing what you don't know, and then just being able to recruit. So I'm really proud of my team. It's going to grow even more in the next year or two, but it's really exciting. And now I'm a lot more prepared for it than I was seven years ago. That's right. 
Whew. There's always so much growth you look back on. I don't know if you do this, but I look at like my businesses and I look back and I'm like, oh my God, I was such like a baby. I did not even know what was coming. And and it is, it's like those steps of growth and then you kind of get in over your head and then you figure it out and you get help and you outsource and you delegate and you boss up and you go on to the next level. Yeah, and that's the fun part. The fun part is the journey. And I think we've all been so wired to just get to the end, just to the finish line. But the finish line's not as sweet as the journey to get there. And like, even if you watch, like, say, a marathoner, or you know, even if it's something as simple as a five k, I, I don't say simple, but like when compared to a marathon, and people cross over that finish line, like their first emotion is tears, tears, celebration, like relief, right? And and they and they're usually thinking back to everything that it took to them, even if it's a five k, and, and you started off with just like walking up the stairs in your house, like you know, that whole couch to 5k kind of phenomenon, like that is a huge transformation for you to go run, you know, 3.2 miles or whatever it may be. So I think it's just more like looking back and just giving yourself a pat on the back. So when I look back at the early days of PMG, of course, I I kind of laugh about how naive I was, but I also celebrate it. And I document it as much as I can, not only for other women positions to be able to emulate what I've done in whatever way that they want, um, but also for my kids. I mean, the reason why I'm doing this is for my kids. It's all about my legacy. And so documenting it is so important. And, you know, I hope one day that they'll have the patience and the love to read through all these stories. So lots of journaling, lots of reflection and, you know, and moving forward. That's right. I'm scared for my kids to listen to all my podcasts. (laughs) (laughs) Now that you say that. (laughs) They'll be like, oh, my God, mom, you're so crazy. I'll be like, hell, yes, I was. And I told the whole world about it. Oh, gosh. Well, now in the day of, you know, a lot of people doing vlogging and TikToks and things like that, I think this is the new norm. So I think they'll be proud of you for putting yourself out there. Yes. Well, let's talk. We're going to hit on two areas today. We're going to talk a little bit about the journey, both your journey. And I think I relate so much to you because I, I feel like I've walked the road with you on my own path, but like very similar. And then also we're going to talk a little bit about differentiating and identifying mid-career crisis versus burnout, which is a huge topic to my heart as well. So let's start with the journey topic. When you've sat back and reflected over the last couple of years, you know, these last couple of months through the disease that shall not be named, I know I've done a lot of reflection and being like, wow, I can't believe where I am, where I've got from. Walk us back kind of where you've been sitting in and thinking about on your journey and then walk us forward through it. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, this is going to be a really weird statement coming out of an emergency medicine physician's mouth, but I think the pandemic for me, like in a personal growth phase came at the, at at the perfect time. So if there's any silver lining to this pandemic, I hope it's uh, for the world to realize that the world is small and very contagious and that science is amazing for us to be able to develop a vaccine within a year. But also what I think that the pandemic did for so many is it put our whole life on pause. I think that a lot of people will, you know, kind of say like, I wish I just had more time. I, if I had more time, I would, you know, learn how to play the piano or I would do this. I would do that. I would pick up a hobby, whatever it may be. And I think that the pandemic gave you that time. It forced you to have that time. Um, But what it also did is it forced you to sit with your thoughts. And I think a lot of times we become so busy and we, we complain that we're busy, but at the same time, it's very convenient to be busy and not to face like your deepest, darkest demons and secrets and fears and insecurities. And so I think you saw 
you know, some people like basically thrive and they made businesses and they got online presence and branding. And then there's a lot that suffered with mental health, you know, issues and, and then some that had both, you know, so it's not, you know, an either or it's an and, and I think I'm in the and part. And I think what, you know, one of the things that happened right before the pandemic is I started realizing I was in mid-career crisis. And I'll talk a little bit about it later about like why I am very specific about the terminology. I wasn't burnt out, but I did have mid-career crisis. And I just kept saying, like, I just wish I had time. I, I wish I had time to myself. And I remember this idea of this idea of having time for myself really started when I guess maybe it was about four years ago my husband went and took me to see Hamilton and there's a scene. And if, if you haven't seen Hamilton, pause this, pause this podcast and go watch it and then come back. But if you haven't seen it, basically there it, it's about Alexander Hamilton and there's a part towards the end. And I'm sorry if I'm, it's a spoiler alert, but his, his son dies, his son gets murdered and his wife kind of blames him for the murder. And at the same time he had committed adultery. So his wife is not happy with him whatsoever. And so he kind of decides to retreat. And he, I think in his head realizes that he's kind of gone so far off the path of what he, what he intended to do. And so he retreats and he goes with her to like upstate New York. And basically he just, he grieves, he grieves. And there's a, there's a line in the song that he sings at that time and it says, you can see him, or maybe it's like the chorus, but you could see him walking the length of the city. And, and they describe him walking like basically in solitude and a lot of reflection. And it is a very somber song, but I will say that that was probably the soundtrack of my life at that moment. I was, you know, I had built this huge network of people. Now it's 115,000 people, this physician moms group that we're alluding to in the beginning of this conversation but it, it's a huge network. I have this amazing career. I'm, you know, a leader in the hospital. I have, you know, a directorship title, you know, all the things, a total socialite, you know, in Los Angeles, you know, I'm sitting on, you know, I'm, I'm getting invited to board meetings and all these things. Right. And I'm pregnant for the third time with my second set of twins. Literally I'm five weeks pregnant. I didn't even know I was having twins again. And I was just like, I, I'm not happy. And, and to add to that, was my mom was actually really, really sick. And she actually passed away a few months after that. Uh, but I was just not happy. I was not fulfilled. And I, and I remember like just feeling so like, so much like Alexander Hamilton, even though there was no adultery or death, I mean, involved as far as a murder or anything like that. But I just remember feeling that. And I, and I felt that probably that discomfort lasted probably another year to two years after. Um, but I'm so happy that I went through that because I think I needed that growing pain to get to the other side which was identifying mid-career crisis, figuring out how to get out of it. And then once I got out of it, I had no intention of what was about to happen next, but I started teaching other women how to do it. And I personally was never, I, I never thought I would be teaching other people how to do something that I really felt like I didn't know how to do myself, right? So now that I, so I'm kind of teaching people as I'm doing it, but I'm realizing that, you know, actually I was becoming an expert over the last decade in mid-career crisis. I didn't realize how much experience I had. And now it makes it so much easier to talk to other women about it. And why I think it's really important is, you know, I was able to establish more of a definitive mission of what I was doing as far as like, you know, women empowerment and supporting women, especially in medicine. But, you know, I do want to extend that to women in male dominated fields. It's not just about medicine. But when I reflect to everything that I've been doing and every time I thought about quitting, because for anybody that's listening, whether you have a business, a podcast, a website, a social media account, 
or just a job. Like it doesn't really matter, you know, what you have. There's going to be days that you want to quit. And that is completely, completely normal. But it's why don't you not do that, right? A lot of times it's like, well, I can't afford to. Like I, I depend on this because of money. But for me, my besides the money aspect, it was, you know, if I'm going to quit now, then like how much of a impact am I missing out on making on the next generation of, of women and girls? And so for me, that's like part of the, the core of what I do. That's the values of everything I do. If you look at everything I was doing that I was overwhelmed by, sitting on boards, you know, partnering with UNICEF, you know, helping with the National Women's History Museum, Physician Moms Group, you know, all of these things that I was doing really all had a common theme. And it's really supporting women to really help the next generation, you know, to help my daughters, to help your children. And it's not just about daughters, but it's also sons, but really to advance women. And so I think what the pandemic did for me was realize kind of where I was at this whole mid-career crisis idea, which is very underdocumented. And that's why I'm speaking out a lot more. And now I'm, I'm, it's like I fueled my tank and now I'm just like, you know, pressing on the gas. And so there's no turning back now. It's just more now just getting the word out and, um, and I'm thankful to people like you giving me a platform to do so. So thank you. Oh, girl, you just took us to church. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) so good because it's so true. I always tell people, you know, imposter syndrome always crawls into my lap for some reason. And so I just always have to remind them I'm just five steps ahead of you. Like this burnout shit that I coach on and I teach on and lecture on and educate about, like it's, it's because I'm only five steps ahead. It's not because I've like figured it all out and like have the gospel truth now. And I love that that's what you're doing exactly with mid-career crisis and elevating women. I mean, you're right. That's like your central theme. You've found it and, and you've seen all the different sources and avenues for which like Maybe consciously, maybe subconsciously that you were working towards that. Yeah, I think I, you know, I really didn't know. It's funny because I look back at, you know, my medical school interviews and I didn't want to be a doctor at all. My dad wanted me to be a doctor and like kind of forced me to be a doctor. And I remember, you know, I wanted to go into business. I worked for the Disney company and I really just wanted to work my way up the ladder there. And my dad just did not find that acceptable. You know, he wanted me to be a doctor, lawyer, engineer. I had to pick. And so anyways, I remember, you know, doing okay on my MCAT, getting into, you know, a couple of interviews. And the first question they always ask is, why do you want to be a doctor? And I was, and my dad told me, you know, as advice, you know, he was an ER doctor himself. And he was like, just don't lie because doctors are like master interviewers. Like all we do all day is interview like tons of people. And we know when you're bullshitting. So just don't bullshit. Just be very honest. So I was like, okay. So they'd ask me, like, why do you want to be a doctor? And I was like, well, I don't. <laughs> so there, I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> and I was like, but I love business. And my dad's a doctor. And part of the reason why I don't want to be a doctor is he, he looks miserable. You know, um, I think he was really burnt out. This is like with the rise of insurance companies and stuff like that. This is, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s. And um, I was like, but I do, I think, for me to be able to advocate for doctors, I think that this would be the path for me to go to medical school, get my MBA, and then to go back into really managing. Because at that time, it was really made aware that the people who were managing doctors were not doctors, and they thought that that was part of the part of the problem. And I think it is part of the problem, but I don't think it's the only part of the solution. But anyways, I guess that answer, you know, 
rung true to them, who is probably, they're all probably my dad's age and going like, yes, yes, come, you know, let's, let's, you know, let's help you help us in the future, you know? So it's funny because I look back at that and that's exactly what I'm doing. Not only am I, I'm helping doctors, not in the way that I thought, because, you know, I only thought the only way to be able to do that was to be like um, an administrator in a hospital which so many women are doing and I'm like hats off to them and I want to support them. But what I'm realizing is that this is not just an issue in medicine, like this idea of, you know, professionals not being happy and being taken advantage of and being guilted, especially like in service industries, you know, I think is, you know, a really big problem. And then you add, you know, the discrimination and the bias against women and then the wage gap and all these other things. So I kind of just started thinking about it more. My husband's an engineer and, and, you know, he can count on his, you know, one hand, how many women, you know, really he, he works with, right. That's a problem. Right. And that, and, and we, we focus on equality so much, but we don't really talk about equity of women. And so I didn't realize that that answer in medical school interviews that I was giving really is what I'm doing now. I, I didn't know I was going to fulfill that in this way, but, but here I am. And, you know, it was really confusing though, because I, like I said, like I was paving my own path. Nobody's done this before. So in a way it's really scary, but in another way to think about it, whenever I get really scared is nobody's done this before. So I can't do it wrong. I mean, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I'm doing it my own way. Absolutely. Right. So that's, that's where I'm at. I love it. I love it. And I love the reminder of like, when you're paving your own path, there is no evidence base. <laughs> you're just, you're just doing it. You're just doing it. And so talk a little bit about mid-career crisis, because you're absolutely right. It is a phenomenon. It's not going out and buying a red Ferrari. <laughs> so much more than that. And it's not talked about. And And I think a lot of people are confused, at least when they come and speak with me, when they're like, oh, I'm not burned out. And I'm like, okay, well, let's kind of talk through this. And, and so give me your kind of definition, diagnostic criteria that you use for mid-career crisis? Yeah. So I think there's going to be three terms we're going to talk about. There's going to be mid-career crisis, there's mid-life crisis, and then there's burnout. Okay. And those three are all different. Burnout, I think, is a very multifactorial and very broad term that is basically, you know, a mixture of overwhelm and dissatisfaction. And I think it, whatever that outcome is, like, I want to quit, I don't want to do this anymore. But basically, like you are done, you are running on fumes. And however, it got to that point, I mean, there's the system that's wrong, that's probably, you know, tons of other components of it. So I don't I don't ever claim to speak on burnout, even the women I coach, I don't ever claim to be a burnout coach at all. There's tons of people in that space. But it is a real thing. And, and there's a lot of factors, the system is a huge factor to it, right? So that's burnout midlife crisis, and I do want to talk about this for a second, is basically a real phenomenon. And it's a real actual, you know, thing that happens for both men and women. And they usually both happen in our, you know, fifth decade. And really, I mean, this is all general what I'm about to say. But basically, men when they hit around 50, and there's a lot of reasons why people say that midlife crisis happens at 50. And usually it's because, you know, our life expectancy really isn't past 100. It's actually more towards 80 or whatever it may be. But you start to kind of realize like your mortality is real, right? And you're not like this, like spring chicken and 20 years old anymore, thinking that you could do anything and not get hurt, you know, but you're 50 and you may or may not have any medical problems, but you hit midlife. And so how men typically respond to that is they're trying to regain their youth. 
And so this is where like buying the Ferrari, dumping the wife for the younger wife or whatever, like all the stuff in Hollywood that they make fun of it. That's where it comes from. And then the other thing that men do is actually super brilliant is that they start looking and planning for the rest of their life, the 20, 30, 40 years or whatever. And they try to make sure that they have enough money to support themselves or whatever the priorities that they have financially to make sure that their financial wallets are, are, are all in order. So that's how men, men are. Okay. So women actually do have midlife crisis as well. And that's around, you know, age 50 as well, around the time that we become, you know, menopausal and women in midlife crisis, they are very different, right? Like we don't sit there and try to regain our youth. Because we've been doing that since we were like 29. You know, how many of us were 29 for like 10 years, right? So we have been wanting to be younger for a long, long, long time. That's been ingrained in our brains from society and the patriarchy. But basically, I think there's a lot of like conversations in our brain of like, what am I really a woman? Like, what, what's my function right now? Because I was childbearing for so long for, you know, or expected to childbear for those of you that didn't get a chance to, or don't want to, like, that's not for everybody. Right. But you basically get there and there's a lot of hormonal aspects to it, right? You're going into menopause. There's a lot of changes that you're going through. And, and and that's kind of what midlife crisis looks like for women generally. Okay. And there's a lot of people in that space, you know, right now talking about the importance of, you know, mental and physical health for women in, you know, 50 plus. So if you guys are in that age range, please look it up find people to help you because it's so important, such an important part of life. And you guys have so much value. And I'm, I'm almost there. I'm 42. So, okay. What is mid-career crisis? So mid-career crisis for women does not happen at 50. I mean, it can happen, I guess, at any point, but typically does not happen at 50. It happens about a decade before in their forties, usually like 35 to 40, especially for women professionals. Now I'm saying this not only with personal experience, but there's actually two studies, one done in the UK, one done in Germany, but that's it. Right. So I'm going to actually, I'm, I'm going to try to do the third study. So, uh, stay tuned, <laughs> but basically women, you know, around 35, 40, what they do is they start thinking like, like I'm not fulfilled. Like I, I don't feel fulfilled and it's different and, and it's confusing because it's like, wait a second. Like I'm a doctor. How can I not be fulfilled? Right. I have this amazing family. How can I not be fulfilled? I make half a million dollars a year as a doctor. How can I not be fulfilled? You start looking for evidence about how ridiculous you are. And so you start shaming yourself and then you might actually start to like go get another career. A lot of people do that, right? They're like, oh, I'm going to go to law school or I'm going to do whatever, right? And then they, guess what? They're not fulfilled, right? So they, they'll do this like circular thing, right? For a long time and not be fulfilled. And why do I think that's so important? Well, one, I was in that. Me sitting, watching Hamilton. That was me, 100%. And that was me for probably another two or three years afterwards. But, um, but why is that so important? Is that the time that our brains are super ready and mature to make those decisions for what men do. They prepare their finances, you know, for the next 40 years, we definitely could be doing that too. And I think we should, but I think that we could be planning our impact and our purpose more purposely, not just like on accident, not just because like, you know, I was busy for 12 years being a doctor, you know, becoming a doctor, but now here's your time. Here's your time to choose how your life will look like, not what you will be, not what you will make. It's how your life will look like. And what is your impact? What is your legacy? And I think that if we have more women thinking like that, then the next generation has no choice besides to be even better than what we are now. And I think it's really important. And I'm going to pause there and see if you have any questions about that, but I'm going to tell you why, like I kind of, what, what the switch was that I realized 
that the next generation needs it. But I'm going to pause there for a second in case you have any questions, because I've been talking for a long time. No, I love it. And actually, I was just given a lecture this last week about defining success. And these were all like our girls, our age, plus or minus 10 years. And really, instead of using like the catchy terms as like redefining your success, it's like, no, really defining your success on exactly what you just said, impact, purpose, and legacy. Because we did all the damn checklist. Like we, school check, kids check, you know, vacation home check, retirement full check, you know, like we've done the checklist. And so you're a hundred and fucking 50% on it about like this point in our life. It isn't about like swiping it all away and like starting all over again or like helicopter momming our kids. It, it so is about like now we get to dive in the deep end on like, what are our waves going to do as they perpetuate out into the future? So no, I love it. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I think what you're talking about is like this checklist is really just building your foundation. You've built your foundation to further step into your greatness as, you know, Sunny Smith says, she talks about stepping into your greatness. And she used to say that to me a lot. Like, you know, I just can't wait till you step into your greatness. And I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? But now I completely understand what that means for me. But, you know, there was a point, like I said, I was really disgruntled, really upset, you know, upset at life. Nothing was going my way. Although, you know, nobody could ever tell that that's what I was thinking. And I found myself kind of, you know, kind of thinking about dropping everything I was doing. I was like, well, what's the most minimum I can work as a doctor? What's, you know, I don't really need to be partnering with UNICEF. I don't really need to be like doing any work with the National Women's History Museum. I don't need to be doing anything. There's, those are just the top three things I'm mentioning because that's the stuff I, I still continue to do. But I almost threw that all away. But let me tell you why I think it's so important now at any point that anybody's listening, whether you're 35, 40, 50, I don't care what age you are why it's so important to build a legacy mindset, this idea of purpose and values and being mission driven and being fulfilled at every step of the way is because I heard this, this study. So the National Women History Museum for people who are not aware of what that is, is that surprise, there's no museum that is dedicated to women. Women are part of museums, but usually in the back corner, kind of like a sales section, you know, and the National Women's History Museum has been established since I think like the mid nineties to, and it was, it's built by like descendants of like suffragettes. Like it's like a huge, amazing organization. And if you want to learn more about it, it's uh, now uh, org. if you want to learn about it or you want to learn about women. But anyways, so so I go to their, I, I help with their brunch every year. I raise money and I, and I, and I, raise awareness and things like that. And the first time I ever went, I was not part of the museum. I was invited by another woman physician named Dr. Gretchen Green, who's a total badass. And she invited me, she was on the board and I was sitting at this brunch and the brunch basically inducts the people into this museum. The museum, the brick and mortar museum is being built, but until it's built, it's it's online and they're raising money. So they're doing all private funds because if they leave it to the government, the government will cut off women in a second. So they're taking matters into their own hands. And anyways, the first brunch I went to was in 2016. And they were quoting an article in one of the talks they had. They were quoting an article that had come out in 2015, just the year before, by Save the Children. Save the Children is a really large nonprofit organization around the world. And they had interviewed girls in the United States and on the West Coast of Africa and Sierra Leone 
I don't know if there's other countries on the West Coast of Africa, but I know that one for sure. And they just asked them tons of questions, right? Um, about like kind of what they thought their roles were and all, you know, a whole bunch of stuff. And what they found the result to be is that by the age of eight, okay, I don't know how old your kids are. They're nine, seven, five. Yeah. My oldest is eight. I have two six-year-olds and two three-year-olds right now, as you guys are listening. So by the age of eight, by the time our, right now, our kids, studies have shown, this study has shown that by the age of eight, girls do not think that they're as smart as boys and they do not think that they're as valuable. And I was sitting there in that brunch and I was crying and I was like trying to like secretly cry, like, and like wipe away my tears. I was so moved by that because I was so sad. And at the same time though, I did not identify with eight-year-old girl that was in that study or those girls, because I'm thinking like, oh my gosh, well, I became a doctor. Like clearly I thought I was smart, you know, but actually I don't know if that's true. Like, I do think I'm smart and I do think I'm valuable, but, but here's the thing when I, when we're little, like we're not very aware of our, all of our thoughts. And there's a reasons why these girls are searching, you know, for value and for social cues, right? Because they're curious and they're seeing in history books that more men, especially white men are in the history books. You don't really see a lot of women, right? And especially diverse women. You don't really hear about that. That's why this museum exists. And and then also traditional roles. And there's a lot that goes into this, right? And then knowing that men get paid more, like you learn this and you learn it as fact, right? So they're already searching for their purpose. They're, you know, they're already searching, right? But guess what? The young girl who's looking her for her value and her purpose is no different really than the 35 or 40 year old girl who's looking for her value and purpose. Bingo. Yeah. So I'm like, holy shit, it's time to fucking mature <laughs> because if I've been thinking like this since I was eight, how can I rewire my brain? And this is not your fault. This is not my fault for thinking this. This is a societal issue. And it's not just the United States issue. Clearly, it's everywhere, right? So I was really affected by it. I didn't know what I, I, didn't know what I was going to do with that information, except for cry. But years later, when I started learning more about mid-career crisis, okay, sorry about the dogs. I know you said that on your podcast, there's tons of people with dogs, kids, and vacuums. But that's right. Hashtag real life. It's I fun. know. Hashtag real life. You guys, I do have a family and it's super crazy. But yeah, but I was sitting there and I was making this because I kept saying I kept fighting the idea that I was not burnt out. I was like, I want to do more. I want to have more impact. I don't think that is burnout. And so when I started reading about mid-career crisis and the little that there is on mid-career crisis, I was like, holy shit, this is what I'm at. And then I literally it clicked. I'm like, I am that eight year old girl. So if I want to give the best advice to those eight-year-old girls, I need to change my mindset now. I don't need to be more of a doctor. I don't need to be more of a business owner. I don't need to be more of anything that I'm searching for. I need to like get this shit together, get all of my thoughts straight, focus on investing in my brain, and then be able to give back. And so now the way that I parent, the way that I talk to young girls now I take pro bono, I, I keep a small number of pro bono clients of women who are applying to medical school because I'm like, shit, if I knew what I know now, if I knew that when I was applying to medical school, like I'd be so much better off. Now, I don't think I was ready for it because when you look at coaching for, you know, for anybody that knows about coaching, it's talking about like kind of more of the frontal lobe and how you can control your intentional thoughts, right? And really recognizing your unconscious, like, you know, thoughts and whatnot, subconscious thoughts. Um, but our frontal lobes are not completely developed until like around the age of 25. 
So I don't think I was ready for it at eight. I don't think I was ready for it at, you know, 23 when I was applying to medical school. And maybe I was more ready at that time, but I'm ready now. And so, and what I could do is I can, I can start putting in that foundation for that, those, those young girls. But I think it's going to take this generation of women to really focus on our mindsets, not be scared of addressing these things to really change the effects that we have on the girls in our lives. So if I can, if I could change the mindset trajectory of growth for my four girls, like I will be happy. That will be my part of my legacy. And if you could do that for your, for your children and everybody listening can do that for their children, like how much better off will they be? And it's not about them looking up and saying, oh, my mom's a doctor. And I can give you guys examples. I mean, I don't want to go over on the time, but I can give you examples of how this shows up, but teaching kids about people pleasing, about you know, the arrival fallacy, teaching them young, teaching them about it's okay not to be liked, right? All these things that I needed to learn, learn at 40. (laughs) If I can teach my kids now, just put those seeds in it, you know, and now they're not going to pick it up. But what they're going to pick up is, is the repetition of my words. And eventually, when I'm long gone from this earth, and they're on a podcast, they're going to say like, Oh, my mom used to always say this to me, right? So I, I won't be alive, I won't be alive to see it. But I, I have faith. And I know, that that's what will happen. Yeah. I'm going to start using your like, hey, guys, we're just laying a foundation until you're about 28. And then, then, because <laughs> I wish I would have had that because I'm the same way. Like we all went to, well, not all of us, but a good portion of us went to med school before our fucking frontal lobes weren't even developed, you know, yeah. like, come on now. But I think like even, you know, like one of the examples I'll give of how, how it shows up in my parenting, like how this shows up in my career and everything, like those are examples of like I talk about for days, but how does it show up in my parenting? And I've shared this example before, but basically my daughter wanted a dog and we did not want a dog, but anyways, we have a dog. I'm not the dog that you're hearing barking. It's another one that I have locked up in a, in, in her crate somewhere else. Cause she's crazy. I'll get her out right after we're done with the podcast, but, but she wanted a dog. And when I asked her why she really wanted companionship and, you know, she lives with two sets of twins. She's like, everybody has a twin mom and I don't have a twin. I'm like, well, this dog's not going to be your twin, but I understand what you want. You want companionship. You want something that's yours. You're a buddy. Okay, fine. So we started talking about it. And I just basically was telling her, I was thinking about it. I was like, well, if it's inevitable that we're going to get this dog because she's going, she's going to keep asking, I'm going to cave in. My, my husband won't say no to her. Like, I already know it's inevitable. We're going to get the dog. How can I make this work for us? You know? So I thought about it and I talked to her and I said, well, listen, you know, I, you're going to have to, you're going to have to feed her and you're going to have to do this and that. And you know, every kid, right. Of course, well, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. Cause I know I'm going to end up doing it and that's okay. But I, it's not about me doing it. I already know that I'm going to end up doing it. But what I was trying to teach her was, and I told her this, I said, you cannot take care of another thing, whether it's an animal, a person, anything, unless you take care of yourself first. So what are you going to do in the morning? You're going to brush your teeth. You're going to, you know, do your hair. You're going to change. You're going to put your clothes in the hamper and not because it's chores, but because you have to take care of yourself first. And the reason why I will continuously tell her about that. And this just happened this morning. She was like, mom, I took care of myself first and I'm going to go and I'm going to take the dog out. I'm like, okay, fine. That's problem. That's no problem. That's fine. And even when her brother and sister wants to help, they are like, oh, I want to take out the dog. But she's like, did you take care of yourself first? Like, did you make sure everything that you needed to get done is gotten done? Now, why is that important to me? Well, I don't care if I feed the dog or anything, you guys, but I had to learn how to prioritize myself when I was like fucking 35. Okay. <laughs> and had to realize that 
sacrificing myself, which is what my mom, that was a acts of service of love, like the giving tree, right? I'm going to give, I'm going to give, I'm going to give, right? And what ends up happening, you become a stump, right? And of course, yeah, you're still useful as a stump, but you know, you could have been- You're so much less. Yeah, there's so much less. So much give, less. Right? you're more useful when you have, you know, a whole fruitful tree. Right. And, and so like what I'm trying to teach her is that, but in real life, not just reading book at like, a book at bedtime, but really like, Hey, this is how you do it. So I know this seems like so elementary, but I'm still coaching women on prioritizing themselves. That's being selfish is not a negative thing that society has taught us that we don't, we don't call men selfish. We call men uh, motivated and driven and whatever. Right. When women do that, they're a selfish bitch. Right. So it's like, redefining and normalizing being selfish and, and in a, in a good way, right. It's not talking about like being ruthless, right. It's about really just serving yourself first. And like Jill Cruz, she's another amazing woman physician. And she gives this amazing example that's medical, medically speaking. She says, you know, the heart beats, what organ does the heart feed first? And it's itself right through the coronary arteries, right? No one calls the heart selfish, but the heart knows if it doesn't have its own oxygen, there's no way that any of your other organs are going to get any blood, right? So it's the same idea, but really practicing it. And so saying it, hearing it, you guys might be nodding your head being like, yes, yes, yes. But you need to do it. It's practice. It's a basically a muscle that you have to keep working out and building up. And sometimes it takes an objective person to kind of show you like kind of like a, a real life GPS. That's what all these coaches are doing, right? Whether it's me, Aaron, anybody else, but that's the value of having somebody help you through that because literally like you've been living your life with all these social cues going on. And so sometimes you just need someone that's like a little bit more objective. So I'm really proud of you and the work that you're doing, Erin, in this field and all your podcasts and all of your businesses and everything that you're doing um, because you are part of that change that's going to happen for the next generation. And so I just want to thank you for, for being part of this. What I call it is like an army against the patriarchy. (laughs) So thank you for being part of the army. Hell Yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Well, anybody out there listening who wants some more great goodness from Dr. Hala Sabri, go check out her website. It's her exact name. I'll have it in the show notes as as well as all of her social handles as well, because you're an inspiration. You're a powerhouse, my friend, and the badass in me honors the badass in you. And I love I love working with you. So hopefully we can partner on more things in the future. Hey, are you tired of going at it alone? Well, friend, you don't have to anymore. Come sit with me. I want you to know that it's okay if you need to take a break. It's okay if you need to talk about some real crappy things. It's okay. You're not the first to feel like this, and you don't have to stick it out and be miserable. There is a way out, and there's a whole movement of fierce females in your corner. If you want to come sit with me and be in my community, you will not see me in Facebook groups. I freaking hate Facebook with a deep and fiery passion. (laughs) But what you can do is come over to Aaron Wiseman's Badass Collective on Slack. Because guess what? 
once a badass, always a badass. And this isn't anything that's paid. It's not anything that I'm like throwing huge promos at you. It is simply a community where I am trying to get people together in the same space so that we can have these kind of conversations safely and in a protected manner that you feel so loved on. It's the whole purpose. So click in the show notes, get over to the Slack group. We do have some community rules, but you know, that's just how it goes. But I would love to see you in there. I am in there almost every single day, having real conversations, posting crazy pictures of my kids and gifts, all that good stuff. And I want you in there too. So come on over, come sit with me. the things. So good. Well, thank you for, again for joining me on another episode of Dr. Me First. And I just want to leave you with this little reminder that I have done for the past almost four years now. Your life, your calling, your pulse matters. And I truly and 100% mean that. So if you're struggling, don't struggle alone. I got your back. Got some.